Get off in the book of Mark. I'm going to start at chapter 1 again. You think I'm kidding? No, I am kidding. We are on chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Don't look to get there until about the last five minutes of the message today. Because of our length of time in uh, being out of the book of Mark, um, I have a different plan for reintroducing us back into it. The situation that we are experiencing now globally and nationally is in part because our nation is wayward. Having gradually lost our bearings as a nation, which from its origins formed its national policies uniquely informed by the Word of God. But over time, we've succumbed to an increasing secularization of these once United States, removing any and every reminder of God's place, of God's role, and of God's rule over all things and all people. And replacing the counsel of God in the Bible, our national leaders grew more and more distant to the truth of God's plan for mankind and became increasingly wise in their own eyes. To use the words of Isaiah from the Old Testament, what does the Lord say about such people? Isaiah chapter 5 beginning in verse 21 Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against His people. (laughs) Happy New Year. Well, several weeks ago, Pastor Brent was uh, preaching through uh, one of the earlier chapters of the book of Isaiah. And I think it was in his first message He was talking about the evil and the wicked times of God's people living under King Ahaz, with Ahaz making friends militarily, but they were no friends of the Lord God Almighty. And why was Ahaz snuggling up to such evil powers? I would summarize it in two words, desperation and pragmatism. The first word I don't think needs definition, pragmatism may. Pragmatism defines truth on the basis of whether something is successful in a practical way. And Ahaz was worried about his extinction as a military power. He was worried about his own extinction as a ruler and as of, and for his nation. And so he understandably starts cozying up to other leaders to get their commitment to become his ally in times of trouble. And what does Isaiah record? Chapter 31 Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. So what was Ahaz supposed to do? Was he supposed to prepare his people for annihilation? 
No, what he was supposed to do was prepare his people for the hope of the coming Redeemer. And for the hope that their God Almighty had not abandoned them and was always with them, even as he had promised. Well, God sends special words of hope to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah and his son, whose name coincidentally, not coincidentally, translated means a remnant shall return. The remnant in the Old Testament refers to those faithful Jews who truly believed in the coming Messiah and in Yahweh, Jehovah God Almighty. We read in Isaiah the words that were given to Ahaz to encourage him. Say to him, take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. That's God's assessment of the, the uh, uh, treaty powers of uh, the kings that were going to supposedly come and, and wipe out Ahaz. Two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, because Aram with Ephraim and the sons of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Taviel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. Here are the words of encouragement to you, Ahaz, about these threats. It shall not stand nor shall it come to pass, if you will not believe, you shall surely not last. God gives a word of encouragement to Ahaz that tells him you better believe it, because if you don't, you're in for deep trouble. But God goes a big step further with Ahaz. Because he wants Ahaz to believe him. He wants Ahaz to take God at his word. That the impending doom will not come so long as he trusts in the Lord God. And so again, God goes a big step further. This is what we read. God speaking through the prophets. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said... I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? In other words, I said, ask for a sign. By golly, ask for a sign. This is for your benefit, Ahaz. Therefore, the Lord himself, since you will not ask for a sign, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Hmm. While many quote or refer to this passage and use it this time of year for the promise of the coming hope, it's difficult to see how an encouraging sign for Ahaz concerning what he thinks is the impending dune of him and his nation is just another promise. And in fact, not just a promise, but a promise that is well into the future. Which takes as much or even more faith than it does to believe what God has just said to Ahaz about Rezin and Aram. Okay, I realize it gets confusing. But if we let scriptures interpret scriptures, 
The next chapter in Isaiah details the birth of the child that God promised as the sign. His name is Mahershalo Hashpaz, who, if you continue to read on in the text, fits the details of the promised sign that God gave to Ahaz in the moment. And when God says he will be called Emmanuel, that is, God is with us. Remember, God is giving this as the sign to Ahaz that God is with you and you will not become destroyed by these kings. Now, if I'm confusing you a little bit, let me give you an illustration to try to help you out what I'm saying here. Let's just say that you have been in a bad marriage for a number of years. I mean, you've tried, you've given it your best. You've gone to counseling over and over again, and it just not only are things not getting better, they're even getting worse to the point of being unbearable. And God breaks through all that, though, and he comes to you in some way that you would, would not doubt, and he gives you some kind of phenomenal word about your failing marriage. And it's so phenomenally good that you're having a hard time swallowing it. And so God says, well, Please believe me, because if you don't believe my word, then your fears about your marriage will, in fact, come to pass. He sees that you're just like, I want to believe it. I so want to believe it, but it's just so, it, it, I don't think even you can help, Lord. So, God, I'm going to give you a sign to help your unbelief about my promise that I just gave you. Are you ready? I am going to take that big oak tree that's out in front of your house, and I am going to split it in three absolutely equal portions. And on the first piece is going to be your first name, on the middle piece your middle name, and on the third piece is going to be your last name. That is the sign I'm going to bring to you. And you're like, you know what? I think I could believe that. All right, so when should I expect that? And God says 300 years from now. 300 years from now? How's that going to help me? I won't even be around. I'm going to be that. that you know, that's not a sign. Hmm. The point of God's promise to Ahaz is that he wants Ahaz to have a viable hope that will get him through the hard-to-believe hope that God wants him to have ultimately. And so you see, reading that Isaiah passage concerning Emmanuel as referring to Messiah as the promise that was supposed to encourage Ahaz is like the illustration I just gave. How is that going to help him? But no, Maharshal Hashbaz is born and fits those details. And the birth of that child was the sign that God was with them. So, okay. I understand that it could sound now like I'm kind of talking about a sign-based faith. And didn't Jesus warn, didn't he warn about that very thing as kind of a precarious way of walking in faith, of always asking God for a sign before you do something and before you step out? Oh, you mean like maybe in Luke 11? Let's look there, Luke 11, 29. As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. 
For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. You see, Jonah was a picture of the death and the burial of Jesus with his attendant rising from the dead when he's delivered, being spit up on shore by the great fish. But now that we, unlike the folks of the Old Testament, have the sign of history, the history of incarnation, the evidences of his perfect life, and the proof of the empty tomb, we no longer require any further signs. Or at least we shouldn't. Which is why the writer of Hebrews begins the book in chapter 1, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in these last days, our time, he has spoken to us in his Son. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to him, lest we drift away from it. Therefore, holy brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he alone has done it all, which is the way it has always been in the days before Jesus' birth. Well, let's take another prophet of God named Ezekiel. One of the stranger books in the Bible, if you've read it, and I hope you have. And Ezekiel has hard words, as the prophets usually did for God's people. Hard words with God describing to Ezekiel to describe to his people how God sees his people. And he describes them as babies that are untimely born. I'm being very discreet here because what is actually described is pretty disgusting and nasty in that book. But that is God's assessment of his people. But Ezekiel continues the words of the Lord saying, despite all the failings of my people in the way that I just described them, yet, even in spite of that, yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. Ezekiel continues. Chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you. I will make flesh grow back on you. I will cover you with skin. And I will put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and I have caused you to come up out of your graves. My people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Is God self-centered or what? I, 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 I. If I didn't know better, I would swear that it is all about him. Oh, wait, that's right. Hmm. Uh, Luke writes centuries later in the book of Acts, chapter 17, reiterating the self-centeredness of God. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and what the boundaries of their habitation, that they would, what? that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets, uh, poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked these times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is self-centered. But you have to notice that God's self-centeredness is all for our benefit. Self-centeredness for everyone else is sin because it is self-centered. But the Lord's self-centeredness is our salvation. Hey, Pastor, um, again, about that book of Mark. Hmm? Yeah. What I am doing, beginning this way, is I am just allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. I know you've never heard that before as a principle and precept, but just repeating it now. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures. Why? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. Well, it is these that testify all about me. And remember, since this is the book of John, the New Testament wasn't written. So Jesus was talking about the Old Testament. Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, again, Old Testament books, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. You see, while the Bible is made up of 66 individual books, the Bible is one unified book, which is why it has to be taken as a whole. And this is why I start this message in Mark. 
with two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, because of John 5.39, Luke 24.27 that I just read, and numerous others. There is one consistent theme in all the Bible, and that theme is the hope, capital H, that always remains no matter what is going on in our world, no matter who thinks they have control of the reins, no matter how many elections are won or lost or by whom. I think I'm just going to cut that out and paste it on my computer for me to look at for the next year. <laughs> that hope is not because mankind is basically good and we are eventually you know, going to get it together that the world is on some kind of a general upswing. Rather, the one message the Lord gives mankind through His Word is that all else will fail, including you. But I... Jesus said, will never fail you. And so we were in the Old Testament and the centuries tick away from the days of Isaiah and the days of Ezekiel and the days of the long-awaited Messiah. The hope of mankind becomes, he assumes human form to live and breathe the air of an already polluted planet. Jesus is born precisely to feel the sting of injustice and the allure of temptation, the pain of rejection and the scourge of sin. Not his sin, but ours. Jesus, whose name means Jehovah saves, enters the world the first time to solve one issue and one issue alone. That is the issue of sin, which separates all of mankind from God forever and ever. The situation we are experiencing now globally and in our nation is in part because our nation is wayward, but even more, my opinion, is because the church that wears his name is even more so. You see, the church that wears his name is struggling more and more, not to allow mission creep to remove the local church's lampstand as the dire warning is rendered to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 and 5. Mission creep is a term that's used out in the business world for a company that's perhaps lost its focus of why it even exists. It's an important term even within the church. And as I said, many, many churches as the clock continues to tick down have so lost their way that mission creep has come in and have steered them away from their very purpose of their real existence. Revelation 2, 5 says, Therefore, to the church of Ephesus, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Otherwise, I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, here's what's interesting about that. You see, the church at Ephesus was commended. It was applauded by God for its deeds, for their toil, for their perseverance, and that they even removed evil men from their midst, and they were discriminating in their theological discernment, and they even kept pressing on, and they didn't grow weary. God says, way to go. Nice job. 
If I stopped reading right there, I would want to be a part of the church at Ephesus. But the Lord is not pleased with them. And the text reads, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Meaning what? Meaning at the end of their day, at the end of their religious conviction, at the end of their devotion and their deeds and their perseverance and their efforts, they left Jesus behind it all. What does Colossians 2 say? That Jesus is to be the apex, the pinnacle. He is to be everything. Not something added on or even omitted altogether later on down the line. Mission creep skewed the purposes to which the Ephesian church and the four other church churches that are listed in the opening chapters of Revelation, they were also at one time committed. It's an all too common tale today and growing worse by every succeeding generation. Even churches which began theologically solid allowed mission creep to carry them so far off the grid of obedience to the word. And of course, as it affected the local church, it likewise infected Christian organizations and universities that were once founded on being institutions of training up ministers to perpetuate the good news of Christ. Personal illustration of how mission creep comes in and destroys what was once an effective witness for Jesus. Is that many years ago when our children were little, we were trying to develop their their sense of a little more global understanding of Christianity and and how God loves all the people of the world, not just them in their little home there and, and all that kind of thing like we do with our kids to try and broaden their horizons. And so we found this organization called Christian Children's Fund. And we read up on it and we liked what the organization stood for and what it did and the way it used its money and all of that. And so... You know, we adopted two children for like $12 a month and the the kids had to use their allowance and stuff and, you know, support kids and they'd get letters back and forth from them and all that and see them growing in India. But you see, CCF, when it began and when we were part of it, clothed and fed and educated the children that we were supporting And integral to it all was teaching them about who Jesus is and the God of the Bible and of the Christian faith. Over time, Christian Children's Fund changed their name to Child Fund International. And it was part of the organization's plan to broaden its outreach. Quoting from their own website, We are now part of an alliance of 12 organizations around the world who have the same goal of working to help deprived children in developing countries. A leader of that group acknowledged that, quoting, some people are concerned about the name change. But she went on to say that many others have welcomed the new name, saying it is more inclusive. So far, you're like, Okay, I'm not really seeing the the big issue here. Quoting, Child Fund has never done. Child Fund, this is their words on their website. 
has never done any proselytizing. That means sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Child Fund has never done any proselytizing and gospel spreading when providing assistance to impoverished areas. That is what they do. They, they provide assistance to impoverished areas, but they never ever bring up the gospel. So they are basically no longer even a Christian organization. They are a humanitarian organization making people feel good and be more comfortable while they traipse down the track into a Christless eternity. Mission creep. Their whole mission used to be to get the good news of Christ into the hearts and minds of these impoverished children. But this new nonprofit has claimed they're more interested in the Christian virtue of caring for the less fortunate than they are with religious conversions. Mission creep. A once Christian organization. Now, nothing more than a feel-good organization. Their original mission, which was to evangelize while taking care of their physical needs, was buried beneath many other good things, ignoring the good thing. And mission creep in Christendom usually spawns from confusing what Jesus came to do on his first visit with what he will do on his second visit. The danger of mission creep in the church is that we exchange our primary purpose of seeking and saving those who are lost. Where does that come from? From the mouth of Jesus, Luke chapter 19. With a myriad of other things like housing the homeless, feeding the poor, stopping illegal immigration, or a hundred other things that you could fill into that list that are all perhaps worthwhile and great things, but they are not the thing. Here at Faith, we've tried to focus what we are all about with what we call the Faith's 16 plumb lines. Those tenets that we have lived by over the years and that are non-negotiable. Number 14 says this, Concerning our church, the church is a community of worshipers, not a social service agency. More on that in a minute. Number 15, the church exists to equip believers to proclaim in word and in action the kingdom of God. Number 16, the church does not exist to provide the material necessities of life. Well, that may come as a big surprise. It would come. It does come as a big surprise to people out there we know from personal experience. When while I would say we have been in our leaders, leaders in central Maine and even beyond concerning a generous church seeking to do those many good things concerning homeless and food and shelter and clothing and bicycles and ultrasounds. And I mean, all of those things, we have invested deeply into those things. It's not like they are unimportant, but they are not the main thing. And if they ever become the main thing, we no longer deserve to exist as a church because we will not be a church, but a humanitarian organization. We have people call up here all throughout the year asking for various uh, kinds of helps of one stripe or another. And 
Sometimes we help and sometimes we don't. We wring our hands over making those kinds of decisions. But it's interesting what you get when you tell somebody that you're just not able to help them at this time. Well, you're a church. That's what you are supposed to do. Case closed. That's what a lot of people think. And in fact, the people that come in here for help, oftentimes, they know we're a church building and bring up something spiritual about, you know what, this is, you know, maybe put a few gallons of gas in your tank. But there's a great, much greater issue here to keep you from going through this cycle that you're doing. I don't religion, Frederick, Frederick. Just give me a gift card and let me get out of your hair. Okay? I'm just saying it's reality. The broad public believes that's why the church exists. Don't tell me about Jesus. Give me some money. Because my ailing mother is dying of cancer and I don't have any money for gasoline. Hold on. Yeah, what? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, on my cell phone, everything else. But we exist to bring people into the presence of God Almighty. Thank you. <laughs> I wish it wasn't true, but it is. The essence, as I said, the beast of mission creep for the church is that it promises heaven on earth. While the promise of heaven for eternity becomes secondary and then eventually tertiary and then eventually eliminated from the picture all the way around. I trust that most everyone realizes today that your biggest names, most expensive, most popular Ivy League schools and universities were founded as religious institutions to train up ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, including Colby College that sits on the hill. I'm not exaggerating when I talk about mission creep and what it does. Well, even Jesus seems to be fighting mission creep right out of the gate. Every time we turn around, Jesus is figuring out a new way to get away from the masses who are craving all the good things that come with Jesus but not really interested in the good thing for which Jesus came to save man from his sins. And the essence of the beast of mission creep for the church is that it promises heaven on earth while the promise of heaven for eternity, again, is secondary, if at all. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has sent out the twelve, and now they've returned from their first missionary endeavor. Let's look at it. Verse 30 and 31 of chapter 6. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. I so would have loved to have listened in on that, or have some of it recorded. And don't you know that Jesus' eyes had to be popping out of his head with some of the things they said we were teaching? And he's like, what? You were teaching that? And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And parenthetically, Luke Mark notes, for there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time 
complete image. Just a note to my peeps in ministry here at Faith and elsewhere. When dealing with people, hear this well. When dealing with people, the need will always outstrip the ability to meet the need. for any person who's involved in the lives of people. One of the very first lessons for you is that you must set boundaries for the sake of your own health and ability to continue in ministry. The very hardest aspects of growing in my various leadership roles and modes over the growth of the church from just a handful of people to what we are today is learning increasingly the importance of being able to say no. The second is being able to say no without guilt. But you know what? We see Jesus here applying the same principle, not only on behalf of his disciples, but as we saw in the very opening chapter of this book. Jesus did the same thing for his own sake. And he was God. The third is realizing that even setting boundaries will not always work. What happens in our text? They got into a boat and they went away. They went away to a secluded place. People saw them going and many recognized them and they ran there together on foot from all the cities and they got there ahead of them. So they get in a boat to get away from the massive crowds just so they could eat because they've been out in this missionary journey for who knows how long and everything else. And Jesus sees that, wow, man, you guys just, you know, you need some some R&R yourselves before we can go out and minister again. So let's get in the boat. We're going to go across the sea and we're going to get to the someplace on the other side and be by ourselves. But the people will see it and know it. And by the time they get there, they're already there waiting. Give me, 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 give me. In chapter 1, God in human form, under cover of darkness, slipped away from even the disciples and went to be by himself. It says, because the crowds were too demanding and he needed some time alone, time to refresh, time to be with the Father so that he could go out and do what he came to do all over again. It's not being mean. It's not being insensitive. It is doing what must be done to keep the main thing, the main thing, of keeping Jesus Christ preeminent, Colossians 2, and not growing so weary that you become disqualified yourself for one reason or another from ministry and helping others. Let me have Don Cole come on up this morning and close our time. Good morning. If you don't mind, I'm going to tell a very short story to help prepare your hearts in mind so that we could pray together effectively. We've had all of our children from various points in the country at home for Christmas, which has been delightful. 
19 in the house. You know, I mean, our hot water tank has been making hot water. So, a lot of fun. But uh, this morning, getting ready for church, you know, I was getting my clothes together. Our bedroom has been relocated to another part of the house. And although I can tell the colors that you're wearing, I am technically colorblind. So it's a pretty good success story if I can get dressed without too much aid. So I looked myself all over as best as I could, and I didn't have a hair out of place, which is easier all the time. And I thought I was in pretty good order. And I got to the top of the stairs, and my wife said, you realize that sweater is what the kids bought at Goodwill for the ugly sweater contest? <laughs> it's the truth, it really. Last minute, I said, attaboy. So I'm telling that story because it has to, in a way, the story that Jesus told about a father who was readying this elaborate Near Eastern wedding for his son. And weddings over there last a long time, maybe a week or more, and invited all these people. And one by one, they began to make excuses. I just married a wife. I can't come. I've got five yoke of oxen. I've got to go try them out. Bought a piece of land. You know, I've got to go check it out. And this infuriated the father. So he sent his servants out there, and he says, you just go invite everybody you can find. And they came back and said, we've done that. And they said, there's still room. He said, well, you go out in the, the highways and the byways, behind the hedges. I mean, you kick up the dust everywhere and make sure that my house is full. So the wedding did come to pass, and it was filled with people. And then, you think this is the consummation of the story, but when the father walked through that wedding uh, well, the area, wherever they all were. He came across certain people, and he says, how on earth did you dare to come here not dressed in wedding clothes? And he had his serpent, his, his servants, rather, go around and gather those people up who were not dressed in wedding attire, and they threw the bums out. You know, coming to a church does not make us Christians, does it? Right? Now, that's so that we can examine ourselves when we pray. And then just one quick, when you were talking about uh, Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones, a long time ago when I was an adult and married, but I was working on a job where another contractor had come in and clear-cut a particular area, not very large, but maybe five or ten acres. And we were there to thin another area, not clear-cut. But they had left all these big, dead, bone-dead, dry pine trees. And they were big. And it was rocky and rough, and it was full of blackberry bushes. And I just filled up, you know, a big saw and went around. My job was he asked me if I would tip them all over. It's completely silent down here, almost vacuous because it was a valley. And one by one, I tipped them over. It's the last thing that I had to do. And the very last tree, the farthest point that it was away from my landing, had this one last big tree, and it was beside a boulder that was twice the size of my car. I had to get up on that car, on top of the rock and cut the thing. And it was so big that even with the saws I had, I couldn't get the bar all the way through it. So it was almost ready to go. I cut push poles, and it was a long ways back to any machine. And I was thinking there, all the while I was doing this, God is my witness that this was like the Valley of the Dry Bones, because every tree, when it dropped, there was this incredible echo. 
And I was thinking how personal God is. I find to push this tree over and I could actually see the joint in the tree move a little bit, but it would not go. I was exhausted. I was a little angry. And I asked God, knowing that he was the one whom the winds and the, and the waters obey, he would just blow on that thing a little bit. I leaned on that thing with all my might, all my might and this breath of wind came out of nowhere just like this. And with me pushing on it, down went this old stub, and it just echoed back and forth and back and forth. And I thought, what a personal and tender God you serve. You know, he has greater things to do than tip over dead trees for an old logger. But he's not above that. So I want us to think about how we're dressed for the wedding. And remember that we serve a personal God who can come alongside. So let's pray. Oh, Father. You are the God that uh, dreamed up, if you will, salvation in the eternal covenant. The one who sent your spirit to convict us, Lord, that uh, we need you and your work on the cross. And now as we live between now and when the ultimate wedding takes place, Lord, we want to be clothed in your righteousness and also with the righteous acts of the saints. So help us to be that way. Clothe us in your Son, and then help us, Lord, to be about those uh, good works that you prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.